My name is Julian Chambliss. I'm a professor of English and a core faculty in the Consortium for Critical Diversity and Digital Ways Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. I'm also the Val Berriman Curator of History at the MSU Museum. And I will be your host for this episode of Every Tongue's Got to Confess. Every Tongue Got to Confess is a podcast designed to document the dynamic discussion about education, enterprise, and institutions, and activism intrinsic to the ideology that found Edenville and shaped its most famous daughter. The purpose of this podcast series is to explore issues facing communities of color globally by listening to the voices of attendees at the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Founded by the Associated Preserve Edenville, the Zora Festival has long embraced an educational aim inspired by Zora Neale Hurston's celebration of Black culture and life. This production is a joint project between the Association to Preserve Edenville Community, Michigan State University, and the University of Central Florida. During the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, interviewer Kimberly Williams talked with Dr. Isaiah Lavender at the University of Central Florida in Orlando, Florida, about his work in Afrofuturism. Dr. Lavender is the Sterling Goodman Professor of English at the University of Georgia. He's the author of Race in American Science Fiction and editor of Black and Brown Planets, The Politics of Race in Science Fiction, and Disorienting Planets, Racial Representations of Asia in Science Fiction. Have a listen to their conversation. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came into this work of Afrofuturism. Oh my goodness, that is... uh... A simple, complex question all in one, right? So uh, let me go with my standard answer. Uh, My earliest memory is Star Wars, and uh, I remember seeing Han Solo uh, shoot Greedo first, this fantastic green-skinned character uh, in Star Wars, the very first Star Wars, not A New Hope as it's labeled number four, but Star Wars, right? And I remember being thrilled by seeing Greedo's metallic green skin and thinking, oh, that's pretty interesting. This is me in 1977. I'm three years old. I saw it at uh, the Angola drive-in in in upstate New York, right? Uh, And so... uh, it's a it's an important memory to me because you know it's it's my earliest one and uh, I can remember the trash compactor scene and falling asleep and waking up in my dad's arms as he carried me into our house uh, in uh, a light misting rain and so that green skin stuck with me. Uh, I can relate it to movies even more when I think about Blade Runner and uh, the voiceover where uh, the captain. Uh, to Deckard's characters said, well, this is the kind of cop that referred to uh, skin jobs or the replicants in the film as as niggers. And I'm like, oh my gosh, and well, what's that? But then I had uh, an awareness and a a racial awakening uh, sometime in between second and third grade when I used to like running against the bus. And in the morning, I mouthed off to some fourth graders because I had uh, a fast tongue and what I thought were faster feet. And so I forgot that moment. And then I got off at the bus, three feet of snow in February. Uh, and I tried to race the, uh, the bus in my blue moon boots and I lost the race. And uh, the fourth graders had gotten off the bus and uh, uh, they circled me, called me a nigger and kicked the crap out of me in my front yard. And I was in one of those fetal balls trying to protect myself. Uh, 
bus driver got off the bus, saved my life when she came back around because, you know, kids can go too far. And yeah. so I remember bloody leaving a moon boot behind uh, and getting into the front door uh, and asking my mom later, Mom, what's a nigger? And so uh, it was a big brouhaha at the school, as you can imagine, in a, a parent-teacher association. Uh, and being forced to ride at the front of the bus for the rest of the school year because uh, they were trying to protect me and uh, my dad giving me the Martian Chronicles uh, and my mom giving me the Martian Chronicles and saying, read this story, way in the middle of the air, right? So that was a different moment. Uh, and I'm just thinking of science fiction in general at this point. And then uh, I also suffered from institutionalized racism and didn't know it. In second grade, I was put in special ed. And uh, my teacher, Mrs. Ennis, who I thank every moment, uh, said, you don't belong here. And through a, a novel called The Mouse and the Mo Motorcycle by Beverly Cleary, uh, had me into gifted and talented within six weeks. And so that, that was another formative moment where it seems like race and science fiction or fantastic literature has always inextricably been entwined in my life. And both of my parents were avid readers. And so I read all kinds of things that I should not have read, like uh, uh, Harlequin romances, uh, Johanna Lindsay and Beatrice Small were the big writers, my sister's Sweet Valley High books and Babysitter's Club, Zane Gray and Louis L'Amour from uh, Western traditions and, and science fiction and whatever I could get my hands on, like choose your own adventure uh, novels and twist of plots and endless quests and so those were the kinds of things that I was reading and playing with my Star Wars and very different, uh, you know, action figures at that time because they came in multiple sizes and colors. And, and those were interesting times in my childhood. And Afrofuturism for me really doesn't come about in, until Milestone Media uh, in 1992, 93, when I was a freshman at the University of Pittsburgh and uh, in the Homewood section and going to the comic book shop and say, oh my gosh, this is so cool, right? And so I know Reynaldo was talking about he's a Marvel man. I've, <laughs> I've read Marvel too, but I was mostly Milestone Media because of uh, the four comic books that started Milestone Media, Hardware, Static, Blood Syndicate, and Icon, and I collected all of them, and I have one of those sad stories about uh, when I transferred to Southern University for the rest of my undergraduate career for three years. Uh, I stayed with my aunt that was there, and I left my comics there that I was accruing on a weekly basis, and when she moved uh, back to Atlanta, she tossed all my stuff out, right? One of those sad stories, because I wish I had that collection. But, uh, you know, uh, Virgil Hawkins from Static was really an important uh, character for me. And so uh, he became Static Shock. They even gave him a, a role on, on the uh, cartoon series, right? And so that was kind of uh, neat because it, it helped me uh, see black culture in a different way, just like uh, the Blood Syndicate group and that, that bad guy team up in that novel, right, uh, or villain team up, I should say, was uh, another way of, of seeing uh, the world in this city, the Dakotaverse. And I, you know, I haven't realized how strongly that milestone really influenced my way of, of thinking. But then I was also into reading 
autobiography of an ex-colored man and narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass and incidents in the life of a slave girl and thinking about what that past means for the future in 18, 19, 20. I didn't know Afrofuturism existed. So in my first book, Race in American Science Fiction, I tried to create other hoods as my idea uh, to combat Afrofuturism uh, because I was, uh, for lack of a better description, dumb. I'm not going to let some white guy tag this entire thing for for people in the world. It should be named by a black person, and this is my attempt. And that was just idiotic thinking of a of a young twenty-something working on a dissertation and saying, "Well, no, this is really something." And as long as it starts, and you know. I'm a, a member of the human species and take it out from there, then race is a silly concept in some ways, but yeah. it affects us. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for that very thorough and vulnerable sort of like trajectory, you know, of how you can. Oh, I, can I try and be as honest as I can in any situation. Yes. Yeah. And so <laughs> with that, and I know you kind of touched on that already. Um, but anything else have you missed in terms of thinking about how would you define Afrofuturism? Defining Afrofuturism is such a difficult thing. It's like trying to, to define science fiction. Hmm. And so I would go with the idea that you know it when you see it, and that's why we have lots of people responding to Black Panther the way that they have, right? And when my eight-year-old says, I want to be a rhino rider, I'm like, wow, this is a really powerful thing that I've been studying that has gone all filtered all the way down to my eight-year-old's mind in 2018. And he's, you know, he's almost 10 now, right? But that was an amazing statement to me. So when I, when I think of Afrofuturism, the definition that I like uh, is uh, science fictional blackness in line with what Greg Tate says in the founding uh, interview with, with Mark Derry in Black to the Future, where uh, uh, black people live a science fictional existence. And then you expand on that with the idea that, well, uh, blacks were stolen by foreign people alien people taken to uh, an alien environment in alien ships, forced to speak alien languages uh, and live an alien existence. If that's not science fiction, I don't know what is, right? And so that's a, another definition. As I was trying to think my way through Afrofuturism, I, you know, I wrote my book, uh, Afrofuturism Rising, and came up with ideas uh, at least new ideas and concepts to me, such as the networked black consciousness, which was not my own, right? That I just developed it further than Kodo Ashun, at least in my opinion. And then uh, the idea of, of uh, the transhistoric feedback loop, uh, where this history is informing the present, informing the future, and it goes in cycles in tandem with something like the uh, uh, hyper-real violence loop, which we can trace ad infinitum all the way back to uh, the first Africans rise out, at least as we say, the 1619 project, the first Africans arriving in the new world. Of course, they were here before that, but uh, you can see the violence uh, inflicted on black bodies from then all the way up and through 20, uh, let's say January 30th, 2020, because it's happening to someone that looks like us somewhere yes. right now as we speak, right? And so, uh, uh, in addition to that, you, you get black people 
communicating with each other across time. Maybe it's intertextual across space just through holding an object like a uh, narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass and seeing how this violence impacts us and how he thinks his way through it into the future and how Harriet Jacobs thinks her way through it into the future and, and how we can apply that now. And that provides us with a sense of hope. So I was calling that the hope impulse. Some people maybe call it Afrotopia, Utopian, and then people, well, how is Afrofuturism against Afro-pessimism? And I say, oh, no, 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 no. Afro-pessimism falls underneath Afrofuturism because Afrofuturism isn't just about utopia. It's about the way uh, there are different black worlds projected by black people and their writings. And then I had my mind blown in uh, a piece that uh, Delaney did for me in Beyond Afrofuturism, where it, where it's just, you know, white people can white Afrofuturism too, because it's, uh, it, it's images of black characters and black worlds, and white writers can do that too. And if we all belong to the same species as we do, then every, I mean, that's, that, but that's really crazy beyond what we think in terms of Afrofuturism, which made it perfect for uh, the double issue of extrapolation. So I, I don't go that far on my own thinking, but uh, it was said by one of the progenitors of Afrofuturism, so how can Samuel R. Delaney be wrong? Magnificent human being. <laughs> that is very true. Yes, that is very true. Yes. And again, I, I really love how organically you are offering transitions and bridging into every single like question. So, um, from your perspective, what does Afrofuturism offer society at this moment in terms of uh, maybe its critique, liberation, or opportunity? I think it is uh, critique. It offers critiques of the past in terms of, of how people have lived together, have been treated. I think it provides a way into uh, the future of race relations. It offers glimpses of possible futures and helps us see around issues of race, see around issues of gender, see around uh, intersectionalities to use Patricia Hill Collins's thinking, right? And so that that's an important tool and avenue for human beings uh, surviving as a species. I mean, how else? I mean, I'm flipping, I'm thinking climate change and things like that now. So if we can't think our way through uh, our own disagreements, how are we going to combat what we've done to this planet? Oh, the planet will fight back and, and kill us and then you know what species will rise next. I, that's, but that's crazy. Yes. <laughs> That is true. We have seen that through, uh, oh goodness, cinema and, and life. Right. That is that is very true. Right. That is true. So in your in your mind, what's the link between, you know, we're at this festival um, celebrating, commemorating Zornel Hurston. What's the link between Hurston and Afrofuturism? Well, I'm going to talk about that a little bit in my talk uh, tomorrow. But for me, uh, Hurston is a, an active agent of Afrofuturism and that she has scientific training with Franz Boas at Columbia University. She has an ear for uh, uh, native dialects and an interest in capturing stories from her people that represent 
the black diaspora in the United States and the Caribbean. And so she uses tape recorders and she uses cameras and takes pictures, these high-end technologies in the early 20th century uh, to help tell these stories. And then uh, she listens to them and she projects them in uh, all of her novels, right? So Jonas Gordvine. Uh, and and the hoodoo that is put on uh, the main character is is a fascinating Afrofuturist application. When you go beyond the science and technology that is, oh my air quotes that that goes, you know that takes Afrofuturism in a direction that we don't think of in terms of hardcore sciences. When you get into native scientific practices and religious beliefs, that opens up all of her work, and so you can see that on display. In their eyes, we're watching God, Seraphon the Swanee, mm -hmm. Moses, Man of the Mountain, and so, and her short stories, and and so, all of it is relevant to what she does. Like I was fascinated by hearing about the, the esoteric traditions. That's an avenue of thought I never uh, even considered that Rinaldo was, was telling us about in his keynote. And so uh, I think she has everything to do with Afrofuturism. I think uh, after Zora Neale Hurston and before uh, Octavia Butler, that's uh, there's a direct link and connection there. Where's the missing link? That's something that I'm interested in now, finding that black female author between those two writers, because there has to be. And, and so that's, that's something that I'm going to go in search of. Maybe I shouldn't put that on tape, but, but I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And do you think the Zora Neale Hurston Festival engagement with Afrofuturism continues Hurston's legacy? Absolutely. And, and I say absolutely because different people are offering different perspectives and different ways of thinking about Zora Neale Hurston's work. You know, it's been read in terms of folklore. It's been read in terms of humor. It's been read in terms of race and gender. Why not what it can mean for future generations? What kinds of future stories is she telling? All right. And, and I, I think if we just use their eyes or watching God, it's telling us how people can get together, how uh, black people themselves uh, have been humanized by her story in, in ways that uh, mainstream America might not have accepted. And, uh, you know, I know Richard Wright didn't accept it when he criticizes Hurston's novel, but she had a much better ear for dialect than he does in Native Son, and so the two become uh, enemies in a, of, of a sort and so you know interesting writers interesting period but uh you know hurston's legacy is ongoing because she's can i mean i just listened to that afrofuturism in russia connected to zora neale hurston i was like wow this is fascinating her impact is is still going it's like a nuclear explosion and we don't know when the radiation of her magnificence is going to end i hope it doesn't and so uh, zora neale hurston society is doing a fabulous work and thinking about the context of hurston's novels and short stories and folklore and journalism 
and extending that into the future. Keeping, keeping her work alive is impacting future generations even now. And so I, I sound like I'm talking in circles, but this is that, that time loop that is as a necessary thing as it's ongoing into the, into, uh, the future. And so I can't wait for my own sons to encounter her work, so to speak. Yeah. And that, that actually gets into, and, and of course you sort of touched on that um, just now, but really thinking about what can contemporary Afrofuturists learn from Hurston and also early black writers and thinkers. To listen, I mean, I don't mean, yes, you're reading the words on the page, but you're also, you know, creating this little motion picture in your head, uh, this cynicism this synesthetic experience that she is producing, uh, sharing thought pictures, it sounds like telepathy to me. And so I talk about that in my book and I'll talk about that tomorrow uh, in our talk. Or you could switch to like uh, uh, Sweat and Delia Jones and Joe Clark's storefront porch and the conversation that's going on there. You know, it may be in the past, but relationships uh, between the sexes have been around forever and they'll be around as long as the human species inhabits the earth and so we can learn about how men and women think about each other and how we can cross the the biological divide in a sense and so i think uh her work is is wonderful in in doing this and i i also believe that there are undiscovered writers uh, such as you heard the Princess Steele and, and W.E.B. Du Bois's early work that was recovered by uh, Adrian Marie Brown and Britt Russert. And these earlier things are being discovered all the time. And so what do you, what do, you do with that? How do you examine that? What framework do you bring to it? And so it's like uh, uh, John Acumfra's data thief in the last angel of history. We're coming back, finding this piece, bringing it into the future and talking about it and, and synthesizing it and, and thinking about the information and the snapshot of, of history uh, that's provided and, and how you use that into uh, taking that into the future where you get a, a, a hip hop group like Clipping and their uh, wonderful slave ship computer love story oh i'm forgetting the name of the song but it but it's fantastic and you're like oh my gosh and and you know these artists are reaching into the past mining it and taking it in the future flipping it remixing it rethinking it and and saying wow this is how uh, we think about the future of race as long as it continues as a concept afrofuturism will be useful now what can you do with it it's it's i think it's representative of the colored wave of science fiction right now so uh, which is uh, afrofuturism first and indigenous futurism is taking off techno orientalism or asian futurisms that have developed from that fear of of the yellow peril back in the in the late 19th century is taking off uh, indigenous futurisms as i as i've already said it all of the latinx futurisms all of this can be linked back to Afrofuturism in a sense, and you can take that back as far as you want, and and probably should. And so, uh, in thinking about this, I think about Nettie Akorafor and and 
her resistance to being labeled an Afrofuturist, she is an African futurist, one word in her thinking, and yet there's resistance from the Afri from the actual African continent. Hey, oh no, Nettie, you're a first generation Niger American, right? You don't get to tell us what our writing is, and so trying to come up with a label of what science fiction fantasy from the African continent should be called. It's, you know, these debates can go on uh, forever and they should. It's a good proper uh, academic scrum, I guess, for lack of a better description. So I love it. I'm, I'm invested in seeing where it goes as long as I'm walking this earth. And what I really like about your responses and your answers, it really um, just kind of defines and curates so much around like multi-sensory, multi-ethnic, multi-theory, and it sort of really makes me think about um, your text and rising too as well. Did you want to talk a little bit about that sort of like creation making too? Well, books are a, a hard thing. They're, they're, they're not hard, but they take a long time as you're sitting there thinking about stuff and distilling your thought and going out and presenting uh, at various conferences and, and getting feedback and criticism and incorporating all of that into uh, the production of a book. And so uh, I purposefully did not want to write about uh, Delaney's work and Butler's work and Stephen Barnes's work and Nalo Hopkinson's work uh, at the time that I was writing because those books have been written, those scholars, those authors have been written about in terms of science fiction and, and Afrofuturism as well. And I love talking about them, I love reading them, but I've, I've uh, come about to thinking of Afrofuturism as black science fictional experience because of Greg Tate. And I decided that, you know, I've taught their eyes were watching God any number of times, and it always comes across as a science fictional work to me, but that doesn't quite fit it. But I developed my own thinking on Afrofuturism to uh, kind of fit how I saw their eyes were watching God and uh, Native Son and uh, Captain Blackman and Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass and any number of African-American texts that are not science fiction by any stretch of the imagination, but are Afrofuturism. And so that to me was the more important book to write than, I, I know people are going to write on Delaney as an Afrofuturist and Butler as an Afrofuturist and Stephen Barnes as an Afrofuturist, and I'm going to write on them that way too, uh, but not at a book length. And so I was telling people I also thought about uh, writing a chapter on Song of Solomon with Toni Morrison, but that would have taken a long time because there's so much scholarship to sift through and a lot of thinking to sift through, but the myth of the flying African is something that needs to be discussed someone in terms of Afrofuturism, and I thought, well, someone else can write that story. If my book influences anybody, I would like to see that. I thought about writing on uh, Flight to Canada as well and Raving Quickskill's story and Uncle Robin in terms of being an Afrofuturism story and it, and it is but then there was an Afrofuturism conference at Yale and I had got wind of someone writing on 
flight to Canada, and I think I just saw it in African American Review or, or some such journal, uh, that actual essay, and like, eh, they said it pretty well. I don't think I'm, I'm glad I decided not to write on that story, even though I'd gone through my process and typed up every quote from that novel and uh, uh, typed up every quote from uh, my research on that novel from journals and book chapters and books on Ishmael Reed, and like, eh. Sometimes you have to let things go. And so at one point I've felt, uh, well, in the very recent past, I've said everything I want to say about Afrofuturism, but it seemingly will not let me go, right? <laughs> and so I am, I'm, but I'm still, I've moved on to my next book project, and, and that's uh, Critical Race Theory and Science Fiction. And, and so that's what my, my heart is in now, but uh, I'm always paying attention to Afrofuturism. And I guess critical race theory and science fiction could fall underneath that umbrella that, that I think Afrofuturism has created for uh, the study of race and ethnicity in science fiction, which is uh, my bread and butter, so to speak. Okay. Yeah. All right. And last question. Okay. Um, if you could, you know, if someone was coming in, here, like, you know, uh, Dr. Lavender, I really really want to get into Afrofuturism, could you give me almost like a seminal like mixtape of, of sort of entryway to kind of like get into, like three to five all across mediums? It could be artists, film, song, text. Okay. A mixtape of Afrofuturism. One, I would see the film The Last Angel of History by Jana Kumfra. That's a, a certainly an important work. Two, I would read Kodwo Ashun's work, uh, because he is an important Afrofuturist scholar, early Afrofuturism scholar. Then I would choose any book by Samuel R. Delaney, probably uh, Dahlgren or Stars in My Pocket Like Grains of Sand, uh, because he's excellent. Then I would also choose Octavia Butler in terms of uh, her I mean, you'd choose her just because she is magnificent, and I would go with Parable of the Sower because it's my favorite Butler novel. Uh, then uh, I think I would uh, bring in the Caribbean-inflected uh, version of Afrofuturism uh, with Nalo Hopkinson's first novel, Brown Girl in the Ring. And uh, musically, I would go with my favorite hip-hop group, uh, uh, Outkast. And I know there are lots of different groups, but that's that's who I'm partial to. Great. And so there there's so much uh, artwork. I honestly I don't know enough about uh, the world of art. But uh, again, if I come back to uh, the beginning of this talk, you know Afrofuturism when you see it, mm -hmm. and so you have to have Black Panther. Uh, the Kugler film. You cannot avoid it. And I think I've given you like eight. <laughs> and so there's so much. There's so much. Where do you stop? It starts. Oh. <laughs> Thank you so much again for your time and for your thorough, really, really enriching responses and answers. Oh, and thank I you. really appreciate that. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Every Tone's Got to Confess podcast, the official podcast of the Zoya Hurston Festival of Arts and Humanities. Holly Baker and I produced this podcast with assistance from the University of Central Florida, the Association to Preserve Eville Community, and the Consortium for Critical Diversity and the Digital Age Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. Be sure to find our podcast online on your favorite listening platform and subscribe to never miss an episode.